We've been going through Mark, uh, through Luke, sorry, man, through Romans, there we go, through Romans uh, 12 through uh, 15, in the last uh, weeks or so, and if you'd like to turn, I'm gonna actually going to spend a little bit of time at the end of chapter 12 this morning, actually more than a little bit of time, and then cover uh, the, the first seven verses uh, of chapter 13 as well. But I want to take a few minutes to focus back on one of the verses from chapter 12 about peacemaking. And the reason for that is because uh, it is just so paramount. It's so important. In fact, I, I've had pastor friends say to me, you know, I could preach on peacemaking once a month, and it wouldn't be enough. Why is that? Because you and I are so good at conflict, <laughs> right? We excel at just messing up relationships. We are so good at creating, cultivating conflict. And I think especially in our day and age, an age of tolerance, of quote-unquote tolerance, an age of live and let live, that, this, that Jesus' words, that Paul's words on conflict resolution are utterly foreign. I mean, they're weird. I mean, they're not just weird. They're, they're, just, they're almost beyond discernment on how strange they are. And the priority that Paul and Jesus give to peacemaking is really found nowhere else. That, that, that God, through, uh, through the New Testament and the Old Testament, but through the New Testament, God shows his priority for making peace with one another. And Paul shares this. He, he, he speaks of it in Romans 12 in verse, uh, in verse 18. Let's just look there again. If you're on page 976 in the Pew Bible, you can follow along there against chapter 12 verse uh, 18. And again, I'm going to focus on 18 for about half of the sermon here and the other half I'm going to spend in Romans 13. But I want to take the time to just drill a little deeper than I was able to last week into this specific verse to give some real details and practical uh, how-tos, so to speak, for what this looks like. So I'm going to read verse 18. It says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I think this is a particularly powerful because I don't know about you, so often our lives are ruled by relationships that have been strained, or relationships that even have been broken, where there's, there's loss even for a long time. In fact, I, I can remember uh, when I was a uh, uh, minister to young adults, those in their 20s, uh, 20s and early 30s, how even at that age, I would sit down and talk to them, it was amazing how many relationships they had been through um, in which uh, there was just real, uh, real conflict, real disagreement. And often that was, that was the end of it. There was no resolve. There was no reconciliation. Um, often when I have uh, spent time with persons toward the end of their life, uh, persons who realize that their number of their days are, are, are limited or numbered, I will ask them that question. I'll say, are there persons... Uh, that you know and love, family members uh, or former friends who, with whom you would like to be at peace. And on many occasions, I've, I've just actually helped those persons write letters, uh, letters of confession, uh, letters longing for forgiveness, letters longing for reconciliation. And it's a beautiful thing uh, to do before the end of one's life, and it's a beautiful thing to do with loved ones who are drawing near to the end of their life will often say, is there anything that you'd like to say to this person? Because often we don't realize that the time is short and uh, once someone has passed, uh, there's, 
at least in this, in this age, in this world, there's no opportunity to, to reconcile with them. So I want to take just a few minutes and talk about this idea of peacemaking very practically. First, and I, hopefully you've heard this before from me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share these things again because it's just, I, you will continue to hear them again and again from this pulpit. But I want to talk about this idea of living at peace, first and foremost from the perspective of, of those of us who failed. All of us sin. We, we intentionally or unintentionally fail other people. And that what do we do when that happens? I don't know about you, but my temptation can be to deny anything happened. Right? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do anything wrong. Or we can defend ourselves. Oh yeah, well, I wouldn't have done that if you hadn't done this. Right? And we can shift blame. These natural inclinations that we may have in response to conflict. But what, what, what Scripture calls us to do, what Jesus specifically calls us to do, is to confess our sin. And I don't know about you, there's been, never been a time that I thought was a great time to confess. <laughs> I was like, you know what, this is a great time for me just to out everything and own everything there's never a good time. There's never a time that's going to feel right, feel, oh, this is going to, this is going to go, I know this is going to go so well. That's because confession is first and foremost an act of loss of control. You are losing control. You're giving control actually not just to the other person, but ultimately and far more comfortingly to Christ himself. And that's why peacemaking is one of the most powerful, tangible, concrete events that, in which we can taste the presence of God's kingdom. You, you say to me, you know, I don't know if God's for real, I don't know if this whole Christianity thing's for real. Start confessing your sin and see what happens. Because God will show up in amazing ways. And I mean that. I mean that so sincerely. So what does that look like? What does it really look like to confess your sin? There are four steps maybe five. Here's the first, okay? The first is to recall what faithfulness looks like. What do I mean by that? To recall what should I have done? What would, if I had been faithful to the Lord, if I had been faithful to God's word, what would that have looked like? And so when I actually confess to someone, I say, you know, when I talked to you about the other day, this is what happened, and, I, and this is what I should have done. I recall what faithfulness is. You know, uh, yesterday we were, talking the, we were talking and we were arguing. And Scripture says that reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or Ephesians 4 says that um, do not let anything uh, harmful come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. My words were supposed to build you up. They were supposed to be a balm. To, to a, a words of wisdom to encourage, to bring healing. That's the standard. Got it? To recall faithfulness. To recall that standard. You, get, you don't have to necessarily use scripture, but it really helps. Just say, listen, I'm recalling what faith... Here is the standard. It's not your standard. It's not my standard. It's Jesus' standard. I recall what faithfulness looks at. Looks, that's the first step. And you don't always have to make that explicit, but you need to know it in your own mind. Because we all have our own standards, and a lot of them just frankly suck. They're either too high, or they're too low. And I'm not called to live, in, to live according to another person's standard, or to my own standard. It's Jesus. He's the one who defines what faithfulness looks like. Does that make sense? The first step is recalling what faithfulness is. Second is requesting forgiveness. I'm sorry, is recounting my failure. Got it? Request, I mean, re, uh, recalling faithfulness recounting my failure. 
That's when I say, because this is what I was supposed to do, but this is what I actually did. And I'm specific about it. I said these words to you. I called you this name. And, I, and, I, and there's no equivocation. There's no qualification. There's no blame shifting. There's specificity. And there's no minimization. Well, I, I could have been nicer. Well, I wasn't, my words weren't very nice. My words weren't perfect. No, no. You actually call a spade a spade. I, I, I really hurt you with those words. Those were malicious. They were mean. I was just trying to tear you down. So again, it's recalling faithfulness and recounting the failure specifically, fully, completely. Saying, I hurt you and how much I hurt you and how I hurt you. That must have been so demeaning. How when I said those words, it must have really just pierced your soul. I'm so sorry. Right? So confession is first and foremost recalling that faithfulness. Two, recounting my failure. Third, requesting forgiveness. You're not just sorry. Hey, I apologize. That's, you can say all those things, but what you have to actually say is the words, look the person in the eye and say, will you please forgive me? And you give them time. They need time. They can't just write there and write there, forgive you. They need time to think about this. You say, hey, just, if you can find it in your heart to forgive me, it would mean the world. And the last thing you do is you resolve to be faithful. You say to them, you say, listen, uh, here's what the faithfulness was that I failed to do. And I want you to know from now on, I'm resolving to do that. And resolving isn't promising. It's not saying, I will never do that ever again. But it's a resolve. It's a deliberate, for, hey, I'm actually changing my direction. I was heading this way, doing this, I was interacting with you in this way. Now I'm going to seek to live this way toward you. I'm going to seek to use these kinds of words toward you or wherever it may be. Does that make sense? Listen, gang, that is just so important. A, a confession that has those ingredients in it is incredibly powerful. You know why? Because it contains truth. It can, it's honest. And you know what the Proverbs say about honesty? Listen to this. Proverbs say that an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. What does that mean? An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. When we are honest with people, it's an act of vulnerability, isn't it? We had just laid it all out there. We said, listen, I failed you in these ways. Scripture says this. I did this. Will you forgive me? I really do want to change. I really am going to seek to do that. It's an act of honesty. It's an act, therefore an act of vulnerability. And therefore it's an act of intimacy. It's like a kiss on the lips. And listen, when you confess your sin, there's no promise that the person's going to respond well. You don't know how they're going to respond, but you have to give them the chance to respond. You do it out of faithfulness to the Lord. This is what Jesus would want of me, and you confess, and you just surrender. Okay? That's, that's doing our part in peacemaking. Okay? Recalling faithfulness, recounting our failure, requesting forgiveness, resolving to be faithful. And there may be a fifth step in there, and that fifth step may be seeking help. 
When it's the 8th, 10th, 20th time that you've had to confess the same thing and you've resolved to be faithful but you still haven't, that's when it's time to get someone else involved. And listen, don't tell me, if there is nothing in your life where you don't need help from someone, I don't believe you. You're lying to yourself. We all have these things that are just besetting sins that just, we just cannot seek, seem to make a difference. Like we try, we fight, and we fight, and we're just not making any, we're not getting down the field at all. So it makes sense. There are things, every, for every single one of us, there are things of us, there are things in our lives that are such that, that, that we, we need to be treated like a child. We have to have a childlike accountability, a childlike vulnerability, a childlike sort of exposure. I just can't seem to get this right. And part of love, part of loving as a spouse, part of loving as a parent, part of loving as a friend is not making that other person, or that other spouse or that child or whatever, bear the, be, be the, lone per, the only person who knows about your struggle. That's not what a spouse is for, okay? So a living at peace with one another involves that ongoing, regular confession. And listen, it doesn't have to have, well, Pastor Bruce said four parts, so here are the four parts, and I lay them all out. But it needs to, on the whole, contain those ingredients, and the more it does, the more powerful it will be. You know what? Jesus said that I'm supposed to do work. Scripture says I'm supposed to do this, and I just completely blew it. I did this, this, and this, and this is what it looked as how much it hurt you. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And you wait. And you give time. Okay, so that's confession. That's part, of forgi- that's part of peacemaking. But the other, the flip side of that is forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness also has four parts to it. Forgiveness is a four-part resolve not to not to do four things. Okay? When I say I forgive you, I'm resolving first and foremost not to bring it to my mind. Does that make sense? When I say I forgive you, what that means is I'm not going to sit and dwell on what you did to me. And how dare you do this to me. It doesn't mean that you don't ever think about it. It means you don't dwell, you don't bring it to mind and just suddenly just think about it. And it just, it, it, you sit there in the shower and you're thinking about it. And you're driving down the road and you're thinking about it. I forgive you means I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to bring it to mind. I'm not going to bring it to my mind. The second thing is I'm not going to bring it to other people's minds. I'm going to go out and gossip about it. Can you believe what she did to me? You're not going to, listen, I've got to tell you about this. I have been so wronged. No, forgiveness is saying I'm not going to bring it to the attention to, the mind, to anyone else's mind. That's the second thing. The third thing is a resolve not to bring it up against them, to use it against them, to bring it to their mind. Oh yeah, well, do you remember last week when you did this? You know, you just sort of bring it out at the most convenient time and you weaponize it. How dare you, don't you remember this? That's not forgiveness. I'm not going to bring it to my mind. I'm not going to bring it to other people's minds. I'm not going to bring it to your mind. And finally, forgiveness involves a resolve to continue to invest in the relationship. It's like, yeah, yeah, I forgive you. And by the way, I'm done. See you later. Okay, does that make sense? Now, there may be extreme examples. I'm essentially speaking of everyday sort of types of things. There may be extreme examples where there actually is an end to the relationship. The relationship comes to a close. Okay, those are pretty radical and rare. But did you hear me? So when I say I, when I, say I forgive you, what I'm saying is, I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to sit there and just meditate and let it eat, eat away at me like, like, you know, correct rust, just corrode my soul. 
And I say, I forgive you. I'm not going to use it against you. I'm not going to mention other people. No one else needs to know about it. I forgive you. It is done. It is over. I forgive you means, listen, we're going to continue, I'm going to continue to invest in this relationship. You know how many relationships there are, especially marriages, where one party has just given up. They just, they're just done. They're, they're just, they've given up. And they're no longer investing. They're no longer trying. And I'm not here to, I'm, I'm describing, I'm not here to condemn it. I'm just saying, but what forgiveness requires is that act of continuing to invest in a relationship. Okay? So what does it look like to live at peace? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, to live at peace with everyone. It involves that, 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 that confession and that forgiveness. But let me just mention one other thing. Let's turn to the left real quick to Matthew chapter, eight, Matthew chapter 18. Here, it's on Matthew chapter 18. It's on page um, 844 of your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Chapter, uh, chapter eight, chapter, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. We read these words. It says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Living at peace with others, says Jesus, involves actually going to someone if you think they've sinned against you. No, there is a time to overlook things. If something small, you think, you know what? In fact, as Proverbs speak of the wisdom, the beauty of overlooking an offense. You're not going to overlook this. But what it means to overlook something, it means to actually overlook it, to move past it, and move beyond it. And not sort of put it in the, gun, you know, in, in the backpack for later. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? You can't do that. You can't be like, oh, I'm going to put this for later. I'm just going to leave this alone for now. That's not overlooking. Okay. When we actually see someone, we, this is how this is, what, what does it look like? So I don't know, when I read those words, if he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, I'm like, are you kidding me? That's the last thing I would ever do, <laughs> right? What does Jesus even mean to do that? What does it mean look like? Well, here's what it looks like. First, you go to the person in humility. A humility that doesn't have all the answers. Maybe they got their facts wrong. In fact, at this point, you may not even want to assume that they've done anything wrong. Does that make sense? You're going to go to them and just say, hey, look, this is, this is what happened, and I'm, I'm confused, and I'm concerned about this. I really value our relationship, and when this happened, and here, here's what I saw, here's what happened, and can you help me, and what am I missing? Does that make sense? There's an act of humility. You're not, you haven't already been judged during institution, or I know what you did, right? It's like saying this, hey, I, I, I'm concerned here. I, I want us to be, I, I care about our friendship. I care about our marriage. I care about these things, and can you help me with this? Okay, so maybe I'm, and I'm not trying to be uncharitable, but it looks like this, and I'm hurt. And maybe I shouldn't be hurt. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm what, what, what am I missing here? Does that make sense? So there's charity, there's humility and charity that says, listen, I want to assume the best, but, but, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to avoid this either. Okay, so that makes sense. Humility and charity. But it's also the, the key ingredient, you can go to someone like this, is hope. You're hopeful. Hey, listen, you know, hopeful for them. It's not like, man, you blew it. This is terrible. I am so much better than you are. Right? It's a sense of like, hey, humility, I don't have all the answers. I'm a sinner like you. Charity, I'm going to assume the best, but maybe, I don't know. And the sense of hope. Okay, that's how you do it. And listen, I've had some of you do that with me. You've emailed me. You've come to me. It is beautiful. What a, I mean, what a high-risk, terrifying thing to do. 
to talk to your pastor about you know, ways in which she's failed. I have so appreciated it. I really have. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to come to me and say, hey, this is, what about this? I'm human too. I'm going to sin against you guys. I mean, it's just, it's one of the worst things about being a pastor is you try to help people in the process. You only hurt them. Okay? And you ask doctors or ask medical uh, health care uh, professionals about the same thing, how often they'll misdiagnose, they'll mistreat, or they'll be, they'll, uh, you'll have patients who are in the hospital. When I visit patients sometimes, I'll look at their, uh, they have this, the, the, the printout they give me often gives what's wrong with them. And sometimes the things that are wrong with them are actually hospital-induced, right? They're actually sicker because they've been in the hospital. You know what I mean? And that's just part of the, imp- the imperfection of caring for people. Okay, but I want, I want to be a good pastor. I really do. And when you come to me and say, hey, listen, I, I don't think that was very good pastoring. I'm like, I, I, I want to receive that. I want to posture myself in a way that is willing and is open and approachable to that. But that's what it looks like to actually, because listen, because when we don't do that, when we don't go to the person, when we don't obey Jesus, what we've done is we've usually condemned them in the court of our own mind and that person has never gotten a chance to do what? Maybe one to defend themselves, right? To say, well, wait, well, there's actually more facts here. Hold on, this is, what was good. this is what I was trying to do. Or maybe it's messy. Maybe it's partly their fault. Maybe it's partly yours. You don't know. But we've never given them a chance to actually respond. And not just defend themselves, but what? Just repent. Maybe they're like, oh my goodness, I did do that. I am so sorry. Will you, you know, and actually bring resolution and peace. So you're giving them the opportunity to confess their sins. But when we don't do that, that's it. And what's so sad about it, and one of the most dangerous things, listen gang, this is just so incredibly dangerous. When we don't go to the person and we assume that we are right, that they in fact did sin against us, that will begin to shape how we see that person in the future which is not necessarily a wrong thing, but it can be a very dangerous thing. Because if we're wrong about our initial impression, guess what? It'll begin to interpret everything else that the person does. So that that through that lens, everything else becomes interpreted that way. And and, and the evils and the the wrongs that have been done to you, that you you think have been done to you, begin to pile up and pile up and pile up. Does that make sense? To a point where, I mean, it's amazing. I've seen this happen before, where people have come to me I mean, they have been deeply wounded by months, even years, of perceived wrongs. And I'll say to them, well, have you, you, know, have you talked, have you spoken to this person about it? Well, no. Okay, well, but have you maybe gone to someone to get help to go, have a mediator, and to somehow work through this to approach? Well, no. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. But the person, the, the offender, has no idea, absolutely no idea at all. And to actually say, well, time out, maybe, maybe some of these offenses aren't, don't have, I'm not saying they're all completely illegitimate, but maybe they're not quite as legitimate as you say. And it's almost impossible for that person to hear it. Do you know why? Because emotionally, they have been so wrecked. They are so convinced of the wrongs done to them that there's almost no reaching them. And, and, and to actually question them at that point is almost, I mean, it's, not, it's just almost impossible. Because they're like, you don't care about the wrongs done to me. Okay, does that make sense? So I'm not saying these things are easy. And, I, and it's important to say, when Jesus says, when he says here, he says, well, um, if your brother or sister sins, go and, sh- go and point out their fault just between the two of you. 
That doesn't mean that you can't go to someone, a, a, a mature brother or sister in Christ, and seek counsel about how to do it. It's one thing if, you know, Jeff over here sins against me, I come to Sarah and say, can you believe what Jeff did to me? Who does that? Right? It's a completely different thing if I say, you know, I think this is what happened here, and I'm seeking counsel from you. How can I go to Jeff well? How can I, you know, how can I do this? I don't feel equipped. I'm scared, or I, I'm just not knowledgeable enough to actually know what this looks like to do what Jesus, I know I need to, I know, I know I need to do what Jesus says, I just don't really know how to do it. So it's one thing to seek counsel, it's a whole other thing to gossip. So when Jesus says just between the two of you, it doesn't mean that you can't you know, bring someone else into that. Is that making sense? So I just wanted to share these general ideas about peacemaking. So one, they're incredibly practical. But two, like I said, the most important part is when we don't pursue peacemaking, we miss out on an intimacy with one another. Listen to this. I said it before, I'll say it again. Conflict plus the gospel equals intimacy. Show me a relationship where there's no conflict and I'll show you a relationship where there's no intimacy. Okay? In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this wonderful statement about, about it's so beautiful, has this wonderful statement about um, how there, there really is no community you have a bunch of church or a bunch of people, it's a group of people, and it's not a community, and he says, until what? Until people start sinning against each other. <laughs> you have to sin against each other, and you have to forgive each other, right? I mean, it's just so true. Real marriage, I'll show you, real intimacy in marriage comes when there has been real sin and real confession and real forgiveness. In fact, there's, there's really not a greater intimacy, I don't think, in marriage until there is that moment of, you know what? You know more about me. You have more dirt on me than anyone else on this planet. And you still what? Love me, cherish me, want me, desire me, forgive me. I'm a, I'm a 10,000 talent sinner, and so are you. And isn't it great? We're forever forgiven. And there's no reservation about that forgiveness. I have compassion for you. And that takes a long time. It takes years for a marriage to get there. It really does. Or for any relationship. Okay, then, but that's what it's to be a small group environment, a church environment, is to be this place where we are regularly sinning, confessing, forgiving. And it's that unity, that bond that creates real trust. I, know, I mean, it's always one of the beautiful things we have in our, in our session. Jim and Don and I, and, and of course Ron, when he was on the session, it was this great candor. We would talk about things, we'd work things through, we've apologized for things. There have been times where we've been texting, and I've said something rash or just you know, with whatever, and I've had to, you know, and Jim's like, ah, it's wrong, I disagree with that, you know, and, and you called me out, and we've, it was that, that, that's that give and take, and that, that rigorous exchange and conflict that leads to confession and forgiveness that creates that intimacy, but also that trust. Like, I know Don, I know Jim. I've seen their warts, I've seen their strengths and failures, they've seen mine, and there's that trust that comes, that we all value, that trust, that intimacy, that commitment that's there, okay? So I'll, I'll leave that alone, but that's, that's the peacemaking part where I want to say this morning. I want to move from peacemaking to politics very briefly, okay? There's a lot we can say here, but I just want to share a, a few things that I think uh, are important here. First, I want to ask the question, what, what's the relationship between Paul's discussion of political power here, and let's go back to chapter two, Romans 13. What's the relationship between uh, Paul's discussion of political power in Romans 13 
and his discussion of the people of God. Paul's been going along here in Romans 12 saying, hey, listen, this is how you're supposed to live as the people of God. And then he kind of breaks into this discussion of political power. And it's like, well, where did this come from? And the answer is justice. If you look back in Romans 12, 14 through 21, Paul is all about one thing. He's about generosity. In fact, look in verse 14, chapter 12, uh, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Isn't that beautiful? Bless and do not curse. There's a sense of generosity, a sense of grace, a sense of giving. Uh, Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Verse 16. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, we just read here, verse 18. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends. There's a sense of generosity, of grace, of treating people differently. It's not tit for tat. It's not quid pro quo. It's not I scratch your back, you scratch my back. It's this generosity, this kindness. And it raises the question. And what's important, like you mentioned verse 19 here, he says, do not take revenge, my friends, but what? Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And it's that confidence of God's future judgment that frees God's people to do what in verse 20? If their enemy is hungry to feed him, if he's thirsty, he gives him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. It's this, and the summary statement in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good is all there. But it raises the question, if, if we are to live lives of generosity, of grace, and if God alone is to be the agent of justice, can we expect justice to show itself at all in the present world? Well, is God's justice merely a future sort of thing that has nothing to do with this present world? And chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 answer that. They seem to give an answer that is mostly yes. All right? It's, it's a way of saying, you know what? There's a sense in which, yes, God will reveal his justice in part, in this, imperfectly in this world, through the governing authorities. And those governing authorities, Paul says, um, are like this. Let me just kind of lay it out here in verses, for, for this, the summary of verses 13 through, for thir- uh, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Paul says, first, government is from God. Okay, look in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He's seeing that government, in principle, the institution of government, is created by God. It is from God. That's the first point. It is from God. No Christian can say, you know what? I can ignore the government. I'm under the power of Christ. It's government, whatever. It's just not, a lot, not, it's not for me. I don't have to, I don't have to in any way, uh, to, to obey it. Government is from God. Second, government is for the common good. It is from God, first, second, for the common good. Verse, look at verse 4, for the very beginning. For, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Or literally it says, he is God's servant for you for the good. Okay? So God's government is from God, and it's for the common good. And what does that common good look like? What does it look like for government to pursue the common good? It looks like commending what is good and condemning what is evil. Look in verses 3 and 4. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, 
but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Do you see that? So in verse 4, you see that connection back to chapter 12. Agents of wrath. God says, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. Paul says, leave room for God's wrath, Romans. Don't, don't revenge yourself. Leave room for God's wrath. And Paul is saying here, guess what? God, the, the government is, is part of their role is to be God's servants, as agents of that divine wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So government is from God. It's for the common good. Uh, why? To, to, for judgment. Okay, for judgment. And here's what's so amazing. Here's where Paul stops and says, beyond that, government really has no further role. And, and if, if you read, you know, for us as Americans today, often we can read Romans 12, or Romans 13, and be like, well, duh, government's from God, and it's for the common good. Listen, it wasn't unheard of in Paul's day, but neither was it remotely obvious that this was the role of government. The notion that government was under God was crazy. Government was God. The Roman Empire was the final answer. They were the ultimate authority. And Paul's saying, no. Nope, you're under God. You're from any, any, sort of a, any sort of role you have is accountable to the one God. And by the way, it's, you exist for one reason, for the common good, not for your own good. Is that making sense? Let me just say this in, in closing here. Uh, there's a lot more we could say here. Again, while this passage looks boring, it's pretty amazing in the sense that for the ancient world, government was a God that was out for its own good. It was not about condemning the guilty and commending the innocent. It was about commending its, condemning its foes and, comm- and, and, and commending its friends. Okay, let me just say, let me just say this in closing. I wish I had a little more time here. But look at this. This is Romans 12, Romans 13, seven verses. And those are what Paul dedicates to politics. There are 16 chapters in Romans. Okay? Those 16 chapters are about how God, through Jesus, is saving the world. And in that role of saving the world, in that plan of God saving the world, guess how many verses government gets? Seven. Okay? And in our culture today, we are just mind-bogglingly absorbed with politics. It's all we think about. It's all we read, it's all we talk about. Most Christians that I know read about politics every day more than they read their own Bibles. Seven verses, guys. Seven tiny verses. God's plan to bring salvation, restoration, redemption to this world has almost nothing to do with political power. I don't care if it's Biden. I don't care if it's Trump. I, you, you have your views. You, you will talk about you know, disputable matters in chapter 14 in the next couple of weeks. But it's not something that really even is on Paul's radar screen. Is it on yours? Let's pray together.